Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Building the Ballot. We're talking about the Golden Days Era Committee. And today I have a very special guest. I have Jessica Brand. Jessica is a sabermetrician, historian, a stat head nerd. You might know her as Jessica D. Brand on Twitter. So I've spoken with Jessica as part of my day job at Baseball Reference. Uh, one of our user interviews, I've talked to Jess. She was just so knowledgeable of Stathead, uh, an absolute master. Um, also, during the height of the pandemic, I watched a baseball Jeopardy. Uh, some, I don't even know where it came from. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. But a, a Zoom baseball Jeopardy, and Jessica absolutely just cleaned up on that thing. She just uh, knocked out some really good competition. I was like, wow, Jessica knows all the stuff that we need to know about a chat like this. So uh, Jessica is a great follow on Twitter. Uh, part of many interesting discussions about baseball history that you're going to see. Jessica will be part of it. Uh, but the thing is, I have no idea where Jessica stands on the Hall of Fame. We've never really talked about that before. So we're going to dig into that today, of course. Um, so I've studied these candidates relentlessly. I know that if somebody is going to tell me something new about them, it is Jessica Brand. So Jessica, welcome to the show. And uh, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh I, I, did, I never want to say it, but now that I'm on, I want to say it. I actually want to be on this podcast as soon as I learned about it, honestly. <laughs> it's like that, that much fun to me. Oh, um, thank you so much. That's great to hear. Oh, definitely. It's an honor to be here, seriously. All right. Uh, well, I really appreciate that. Um, so just some background. You know, I come at this, uh, the Hall of Fame from a statistical background. So there are candidates on this ballot, the Golden Days era ballot, which... Uh, just to, to recap, this is candidates who um, 1950 to 1967 was when they had their, their key impact on the game. So like Dick Allen, Minnie Minoso, uh, Ken Boyer, Bill Freehand, those are kind of the guys that I went into this knowing that they would be my top candidates. There's other sabermetric candidates like Jimmy Wynn, Tony Oliva, uh, sorry, uh, Willie Davis is who I was thinking of, uh, Billy Pierce, and then some of the more traditional candidates like Gil Hodges and Tony Oliva, Jim Cott, Maury Wills. Uh, and Kurt Flood is uh, an interesting one that I've kind of warmed up to. I wasn't sure about him at first, but the more I've dug into his case, I see that he's, he's certainly uh, an interesting candidate on here. So I'm hoping that uh, beyond those four or five that I'm, I'm really sure about, hoping you'll be, help me be able to break some ties on these candidates. Uh, and I know that you're, you're always great for having interesting facts about uh, lots of different players or, or teams. So maybe we could walk through the 10 candidates that uh, you would name to your ballot or up to 10, something like that. Um, and I'll go into this. I'll tell the listeners, I don't actually know who Jessica is picking at this point. It's going to be a, a surprise for me as well. So, yeah. Admittedly, I think the Hall of Fame has interesting standards um, from a statistical standpoint and not in the way that you might think. My okay. list is pretty short, but I feel like the fewer people that we elect of a given class, not to say it should be massive, but the fewer people we put in on a relative basis means that we make it harder for people to get in. Now, we can have that belief if we want to have that belief, but we don't necessarily need to have that belief because at some point, I think we need to have a standard of what we think makes an average Hall of Famer because we talk about like something like Jaws and so forth like that, about what existing standards are, but eventually those standards start to be raised if we start to have smaller classes where nobody gets in. Hello, writers. Can we fix that? But yeah. yeah. I had a few uh, select candidates that... 
I wanted to get in immediately. Um, so admittedly, I'm kind of a median hall person. I'm kind of the Switzerland of the Cooperstown Hall of Fame here. So I picked a few names that really stuck out to me that were excellent in terms of who I would vote in. Um, in terms of 10 candidates, I would put on the ballot, not necessarily vote in, but put on the ballot. Boyer, Allen, Wynn, Davis, uh, Pierce, a uh, little bit on Pierce. Pierce had an incredible year early in the 50s that does not get enough credit for an all-time second half. Um, Mignoso, Freon, um, Bavazzi stuck out to me. There were some questions I had because of his Padres tenure and everything, but he was mm-hmm. someone I would definitely consider on the ballot. Um, again, I'm not voting for everybody here, but there were so many names in, I think, an era that's extraordinarily well represented because it is called baseball's golden era. And it's the one that you will hear announcers harken back to that you will hear is like, oh, this is when the best game was played. Oh, you even have the song talking baseball, Willie, Willie Mickey and the Duke, right? So, yeah, that's interesting you say that because it's almost liberating that there's uh, so many players from this era already in the Hall of Fame because I feel like with every other era, I'm so overwhelmed by the number of candidates that are on the outside. And I feel like with this era, I'm allowed to kind of dig into them a little bit and find out who I think should be in because I don't have like 20 names that immediately rush to the top of my mind. You know, there's not like a Bill Dolan or a Jim McCormick here for me who are two people I put in from the dead ball era and and before that, um, the early days. But this one was so limiting and I was surprised to see that you know, because I mean, I would think that, okay, this area is going to be well represented, but I didn't think it was going to be this well represented. But, you know, the thing is, too, represented. But no, the thing is, too, is that you're going to have obviously some oversights. And I think there are some that certainly apply. Um, so I can give you who I would vote in right now um, if you want to have that. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So one of these is sentimental and. You know, if you pay attention to this day in baseball history, when we record this, it's um, October 7th. So this guy, he was infamously traded on the state um, on a team he refused to play for, the Philadelphia Phillies. And part of that was because of the miserable fans on the last place finish, only to get smashed by the Dodgers. And they actually did not fly a charter jet at that point at the time of the trade. And that was part of his objections, more than just the fans, the city, the team, but how they flew, which to me is interesting for back then. But Kurt Flood, to me, gets in, not necessarily on a statistical basis, but on the fact that he revolutionized the game about standing up for players' rights with Marvin Miller and really advantaging free agency. Yeah, you could say Messer Smith was the first free agent. You can look at Hunter as signing real with the first mega deal out of free agency. But nobody really stood up to the reserve clause to this extent. And in this case, I really invoked baseball's character clause. We're going to hear about that later in reverse for sure. But you consider what he did after his playing career. You want this kind of guy in. So he helped disadvantage Hughes, who had um, HIV in the 80s. So this guy would stand up for everybody and everybody. And I love to see that for baseball. You're talking about a guy who maybe on stats alone is kind of fringe, but certainly warrants consideration. But when you add in the character clause, and I think it should be used to add from players and not take away because God knows that's actually happened to somebody in this class. But Kurt Flood, to me, for being a good citizen and revolutionizing what baseball stands for is incredible, right? Because free agency impacted what player contracts get now, certainly. But think about what something like Valley Sports is. Now, this is going to sound weird, right? An RSN, a national RSN. 
but teams can sign up with these companies and television contracts make up about three quarters of revenue, according to like a fan graphs report that was done a few years ago. And it's revolutionized what teams can do as well. I don't think that gets enough credit. And maybe that's a little bit far to extrapolate it. But to me, it revolutionized the growth, benefit, and wealth of teams and players alike. And if we don't have that in the Hall of Fame, we're missing the full story. I realize Marvin Miller didn't want to be inducted, and he got inducted. But I feel this is a similar case. Yeah, I, I'm i definitely uh, on board with this one. I, I wasn't as high on Flood going into this. Uh, just because, you know, I was like, oh, he doesn't have the numbers. and But the thing is, he was on his way to a borderline Hall of Fame career. Uh, the more I dug into it, the last three years, he had over 13 war. He's coming off a 3.8 war season when he did all of this. And you're right. Like everything that he did just opened the door up for all of these other players like Messersmith to, to go ahead and and actually become the first free agent. So it's like, you know, he, they were the first to cross the bridge. He was the one that built it, so to speak. So I think that that, that, that really does uh, deserve extra consideration. And considering how close he was to that borderline Hall of Fame case already, I don't think that you need to add too much on top of it. And he did certainly more than enough. No, certainly. I mean, and you feel kind of bad for him, kind of in a, uh, a hack Wilson way about what kind of became of his personal life later, later within it. I mean, Granted, that's not a reason to vote for somebody or for or against them, but it's like you can't help but feel relation and empowerment when you talk about the story of Kurt Flood. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think I think there's something to that about resiliency within baseball. Like people talk about the dog days of summer, the 162 game or 155 game grind, and he exemplifies that as a person. Yeah, you, you mentioned this as a sentimental pick. Do you mean like uh, in a non-statistical way that it was sentimental or was there something else that you had there? Right, so this is sentimental. This is emotional in terms of what I think the character clause is meant to invoke mm-hmm. within baseball's Hall of Fame. And it is weird to me that I'm starting with a guy who I really admittedly does not really pass my statistical muster. And that's not a slight on flood, but I think, I think baseball needs to have um, stories of people who are in the game and how they innovated it. Like, would you really have a Hall of Fame without Candy Cummings and his curveball? I don't think you would. Baseball is a game of stories. The Hall of Fame tells those stories through plaques and individuals. And I think he represents it in that specific respect. The other candidates I picked are very statistically based upon, you know, trends of Hall of Famers and um, how rare some of these feats are. But this one is definitely different in that regard. So it's sentimental, but it's also baseball sentiment um, beyond my own. So it's, you know, you have person versus society sometimes in stories. So this is man against society, but this is man with society now. Because baseball, I think, represents what he stood for. Uh, yeah. Do you want to talk about some of those more statistical candidates next to, to kind oh, of get that? Of course. <laughs> of course. So my Excellent. all right. So the first one I had researched and looked at right away is Ken Boyer. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ken Boyer, Ken Boyer was not my number one overall as I went through these, but he was way up there. So I have a few fun facts about things he did with his cycles. He had two cycles in his career, but both of them were interesting. Um, it's the least fun one of the two, and I, I think it says how much more fun the second one is. It was on June 16th of 1964, and it was a natural cycle. It actually involved a Don Larson, fun fact. Um, and then his second one uh, was on September 14th, 1961. 
And that is the first of five cycles to complete the cycle with a walk-off home run. Mm. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. So, I mean, I wonder why he's not in when I look at his contemporary and his rival at the same time, Ron Santo. Both had five gold gloves. I mean, Ron did have two more all-star games and he did nine to seven. Um, but Santo was at a career 277, 362, 464 slash line. Boyer was at 287, 349, 462 slash line. So um, when you look at baseball reference, you can look at something called uh, baseball wins above replacement seven. And that looks at the seven peak seasons. He had 46.3. Um, that is actually above a Hall of Fame third baseman's peak of 43.1. And his 46.3 is ninth among all third basemen that exceeds um, names like Brooke Robinson. Jaws is a little bit short from 54.5 to 55.9 of existing Hall of Famers. But man, that's just really close, right? Mm. So there's only one other inactive player, non-Hall of Fame, who played third base, has an MVP and at least four top fin- 10 finishes. It's Bob Elliott, who you never hear for the Hall of Fame. Right. Um, so this is, as much as this is in basketball, where a player can control his incessancy and it's kind of intangible, it is favorable that he had his World Series win in 1964, which is his MVP year, which looks really good for a plaque, right? One MVP team, one World Series. And even at a home run in the clinching game seven, it's that game is interesting. So I found out that's the only time in World Series history that brothers, because uh, his brother Pleat played for the Yankees, have homered in the same game. Oh. Now, when he, he led the NL and RBI that season in 119. It's the first NL third baseman to do that since Heine Zimmerman in 1917. We're not going to talk about what happened to Heine Zimmerman because <laughs> it was suspicious. Anyway, but Boyer is significant to the Flood case here. So he's part of the reason that the Cardinals actually acquired Kurt Flood. So in 1957, uh, Ken Boyer volunteers to play center field to allow Eddie Casco to play his natural position at third base. Um, now, Boyer responded excellently to that. He actually led all NL outfielders in fielding position that year, but then Casco was injured in 1958, and that's how Kerflow was acquired from the Reds to play center field because of Ken Boyer. It ties wonderfully well. Yeah, Ken Boyer, uh, I'm just like you. I'm surprised that based on his raw stats that he's not in because his traditional case might be better than his sabermetric case even. Uh, There are so few third baseman in the hall of fame though. So we have to remember that those jaws standards are quite high for third base because there aren't that many in, uh, and yeah, he exceeds them. And I think that that's, he's, he certainly makes, uh, for an excellent hall of fame candidate to me. All right. So that's Ken Boyer. Uh, where do you want to go next? Do you want to stick with a statistical candidate that you're in favor of, or you want to go somewhere else? All right. So, um, so the research I've done was for the ones I went to put in. Okay. So, um, so let's go with who, if I had ultimate say, the player who is not on the ballot and is not in. Um, and that would be Dick Allen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely Dick Allen. I, he would be my one guy who's in on the ballot and he, I would vote him in. I feel so strongly about this guy. So let's talk about this to start off with Dick Allen. His case is more sabermetrics than I think Boyer's, which is more traditional, like Adam said. So from 1964 to 1974, with 6,000 or more plate appearances in that stretch, um, an OPS of 145 or greater, 
Kari Ostremski was at 145. Killebrew was at 148. Stargill was 153. Frank Robinson and Henry Aaron were 159. Dick Allen was 165. How about this? And then he led um, two overlapping 10-year periods of wins above replacement from 63 to 72 and 64 to 73. Any other period before him um, to have such a 10-year strike of leading above wins or above replacement is in the Hall of Fame. After, also in. Well, mostly. The The first one after him to not get in is actually Barry Bonds from 1985 to 1994. The, con- the the problem I see why he didn't get in is the is the character clause, which is ridiculous, right? Because that is part of the, the I mean, why are we holding that against him? Because he spoke up? That to me is absolutely ridiculous. Right. So I mean, you want to talk about quality of character. Michael Jack Schmidt, the Phillies great third baseman, he credited Allen as both an excellent mentor off the field and role model in terms of his on field play. And I don't think I ever heard Michael Jack Schmidt having any kind of character concerns. I don't know about you. <laughs> right. But he kind of reminds me about a guy named Cookie Gilchrist, if you know football at all, um, who was kind of outspoken about things in the CFL and the NFL, but he's not in either. Really bothers me. Um, so also, there have been 1,035 MLB players in MLB history with at least 5,000 plate appearances. So he ranks, I believe, 59th in wins above replacement per 162 at games played at 5.437. Um, Chipper Jones is just above him at 5.530 uh, wins above per 162. And get George Bragg just below him at 5.302. Now, this is just crazy. There are just four players to have an OPS plus of 150 or better over the course of a career over 7,000 or more played appearances who aren't in the hall. Barry Bonds, McGuire, Ramirez, and Allen. Um, also, and last but not least, this is where it's weird to me. There are five qualif- There are two players who have five qualified seasons who have a 300, 375, 550 slash line and five or more qualified seasons to not make the hall from 1871 to 1995. Um, there are 31 players who have five plus seasons who are in. The two who are not in are Dick Allen and John Beckwith, who needs to be in as well. Ah, uh, yes. Um, but yeah, th- this is this is a slam dunk candidate. This is not somebody who was embroiled in PEDs, regardless of what you think about that. This is why, like literally, all the other candidates are not in who I mentioned within these time frames. This is somebody who spoke his mind, and that's really reason enough to deny him entrance. No, no, it's not. Right, and he spoke his mind as uh, a young black man in Philadelphia in you know the '60s, and for the the writers to then hold that against him, you know, I I don't think that that's anything that you can come close to doing because y- you weren't in Dick Allen's shoes. Like, I, how can you hold that against him when I don't know? I, I guess we see through th- things through a different lens today than than they did then. This is an egregious omission. I totally agree. And it's definitely the right time to, to write this wrong. Well, it's not the right time because unfortunately, Mr. Allen passed away a couple of years ago. And that yeah. is very unfortunate. Uh, he should have been able to see this election. Um, but unfortunately, he does not. What you said earlier about the OPS plus in 7,000 plate appearances, and you listed the players outside the Hall of Fame. I think it's really worth noting, too, how few players how few uh, inside the hall of fame 
have a higher OPS plus too. There, he's 15th among all players uh, in OPS plus with 7,000 or more plate appearances. So that includes the Hall of Famers and the non-Hall of Famers. 15th is incredible. Uh, so yeah, I'm right there with you. He's he's a slam dunk. Uh, use every you know uh, every cliche you want. Uh, no brainer, slam dunk, ev- everything. Dick Allen for the Hall of Fame right now. All right. So my final candidate is um, you know it seems fitting we save him for last because he played um, his time span played forever, and that's Mini Minioso. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have so many great things to say about him. And some quotes to that. I, I like to look at player influence. It doesn't really swing how I feel, but it really gives you an essence of the guy if you weren't really around to see his playing days. Um, so Sacco Pico Mini Minioso, he said that I rate him number one. I've been around baseball for some 23 years. And if there's one thing I know, that's a ball player when I see one. He's the fastest. That man's fast as lightning. He's a flat-footed hitter, so he can get anything. You have to keep the ball away from him. And, well, I guess they were going to keep the ball away from him given how well he hit, right? So five players during the 50s had at least 3,000 plate appearances with a 300 or better batting average, 400 on base or better. You have Sam Usual, Ted Williams, Mickey Mantle, Jackie Robinson, and Minnie Mignoso. Um, Orlando Cepeda. Orlando Cepeda loved him as well. He called Orestes Mignoso was the Jackie Robinson for all Latinos. The first star who opened doors for all Latin American ball players. He was everyone's hero. I wanted to be Minoso. Clemente wanted to be Minoso. And really, I like to look at guys who open doors. Again, it doesn't necessarily swing it. It could, but it it might not. But here's something that I found incredible as well about his rookie season. Two rookies in AL history have had 100 runs scored or more, 30 or more stolen bases, and a 400 on-base percentage. Neither is in the Hall of Fame. And Yoso in 1951 is one, but the other is Shoeless Joe Jackson in 1911. Interesting, yeah. Um, so Minoso had 47.6 wins above replacement. That was second most in the AO during the 50s and only Mantle at 68.1 and more. Um, two players during the 50s had 300 or better batting average with at least 100 home runs and 100 stolen bases. Um, Minoso, of course, is one. The other is Willie Mays. What about when you add all his hits together? Major League hits, 1963, Minor League, 429, Cuban, 838, Mexican, 715, Negro League, at least 128 that we know of. That gets you 4,073. And what that does, well, that ranks seventh all time. Uh, the ones above him are Julio Franco, Yeager Stotts, uh, Henry Aaron, Ichiro, Ty Cobb, and Pete Rose. I mean, this is just incredible company to have. And, you know, from 1951 to 1960, um, he hit 307 with the 397 on base. Only Mantle scored more runs. Mantle and Barrett drove in more runs batted in. I mean, and that makes sense because those Yankee teams were so stacked. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, for a guy that never played in the World Series, that's actually pretty impressive given his offenses. Only Luis Aparicio stole more bases, and that was only one more base. And only Nelly, Fra- Nelly Fox cracked more hits. All of them are Hall of Famers. And still, Mignoso had more doubles than anybody I just mentioned. Why not? Right there with you. I mean, all of that, and he did it with like a 130 OPS plus, which is like 
<laughs> I, I was going to say solidly above average, but yeah, it's better than that. Uh, like you said, his numbers in the fifties, compare him to, to Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. Those are the numbers, uh, the names that are being uh, tossed around with him. I mean, he wasn't on par with those two players, but he was the next guy like that. That's a hall of famer. Uh, and adding in the Negro Leagues numbers, it shows that, you know, he was an all-star caliber player before he even made it to the AL and NL. Well, never played in the NL, but the, the AL. And then, you know, he was stuffed in the minors for a couple of years while, while they figured out what to do with him, even though he was already a major league caliber player. Yeah, I'm definitely all in on Mini Mino, so. Yeah. So I, I, I had a few that came to mind to me that were interesting because because Bavazzi, to me, if he had just continued with the Dodgers and showed it wasn't just bring Tricky's handiwork, may have gotten in. The other names stuck out to me because they had good peaks, but I don't think they had enough in terms of careers. Like um, when Davis and Pierce struck out to me, Freehan, I was on the line about, but those are the four that I would put in right now. I am subject to sway to my opinion because – Goodness knows, um, I always like to hear more things if if I'm going to learn them and implement them. Interesting. I, I'm glad that Wynn came up because I feel like in the last episode, we didn't talk about him enough. And I think he he's an interesting sabermetric candidate. So do you have uh, uh, anything you'd like to share about Wynn first? Um, so not currently, admittedly, but <laughs> I, wish, I, wish, I wish I had a little bit more. I mean, I mean, you have to love his nickname, though, the Toy Cannon. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorites from his time. Um, certainly a good number of years uh, with Los Angeles. A very interesting peak uh, with the Astros. Right around, I think, the peak at the end of this era. And it's tough, I know, where to put him. I think his best years were really late 60s. You look at, like, a 167 OPS plus in 69, which was not an all-star year. 158 and 68, not an all-star year. Um I think he's. I think he suffered from the team that he played on, right? Because I mean, he was a great player, um, but I, I think part of his team matters didn't help him as much he, as he did play for the Yankees for a little bit in nine, 1977, the Dodgers for a few years in 74, 75. What a surprise! He actually made All Stars those years, right. even though he wasn't nearly the complete player he was with his Houston days. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing that worked against him was playing in the late 60s. So this is like the, the height of the, the years of the pitcher. And he did them in the Astrodome, which was just absolutely cavernous at the time. And to, to look at some of his numbers, like he hit 250. That's, that's something that obviously looks a little bit different these days than it did then. But a lot of voters, you know, took a look at that 250 and thought, you know, obviously there's there's no chance he's a Hall of Famer. He didn't didn't even hit three home 300 home runs, but he's got the 366 OBP, which in that era is uh, a very solid OBP, and the 436 slugging. 436 again does not look like anything today, but put those together and it's a 129 OPS plus. I mean, I was just talking about Munoz's 130 OPS plus, and Win is right there. He he didn't quite I mean, he didn't play 2000 games he didn't get the 2000 hits so there are certain things about his candidacy that just don't look as good on paper as even minosos but uh win is definitely an interesting player that requires a little bit of um a little bit of digging into to understand just how strong a candidate he really is yeah it's fascinating right because 
you look at the fact that he played like right at the, as you mentioned, right at the peak when the mound was still higher and before it was lowered. And he played, I think, was a very picking heavy league at the time, like even mm-hmm. beyond the era. Like teams focused on building and trying to find the next Bob Gibson in that time. Like it was just a tough era to hit in. And really, frankly, weren't, weren't the best of teams on uh, what really was a tough place to hit, like you mentioned. And I just, to me, it's close, right? Because I, I understand the argument for him that he had so much working against him in terms of even counting stats, rate stats, um, that the people would look at at the time because um, people would source batting average for like, oh, you should get a pay cut. You shouldn't even be a free, you, your salary should go down because of that. And I mean, I don't think he really got respect from all-star voters in that respect. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that he was playing for a relatively new team didn't help that either, right? Because if you play for a more storied franchise, even with those numbers in that time, you might get the recognition as much. But to play for Houston for most of your career at that point was not really glamorous or anything. And it was more about the eighth wonder of the world. And, and the real attraction was supposed to be the stadium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it is interesting that you note that as soon as he got out of Houston, he was an all-star two years in a row. That first year in L.A., he was uh, genuinely, like, he was he was great. Uh, I mean, L.A., not even a great park to, to hit in either, obviously. And, you know, he was, he hit, what, what is it, 271 that year, but he had the 387 OBP and the 497 slugging, over 150 OPS plus. He was nearly eight war on that season. So it's just it doesn't look like an eight war season on the surface, but you know, once you park adjust and era adjust, you realize that this was a guy that I, I don't know what it is about him. Like even more than the other players of his era, he really got hit by uh, just a tough luck, I guess, of not having those uh, gaudy numbers. I mean, he had other teammates on the Dodgers and, and Astros that, I, I mean, I guess obviously just, weren't as good. They didn't even have the numbers that, uh, that win has, but he's a candidate that requires a lot of sabermetric nuance to, to really figure out. Yeah. And that to me is what's fascinating, right? Because I like to look at this type of player, like just in general, someone who has everything working against him, but you know, sometimes you have to little, do a little bit of dig um, ditch digging and try to uh, try to get the dirt out and you find and you wind up finding gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it raises the question, like if you have to do these types of mental gymnastics, does that make the player a hall of famer? Maybe not. Um, he, he didn't make your cut here, but he, he makes your ballot. I think that that, that is certainly at least a minimum uh, level for how we should remember Jimmy Wynn. I mean, he, I don't think he lasted very long on the ballot. I, I, I should, I have to look at it again, but was he one of the one and done players? Uh, he, he, yes, he actually did not receive a hall of fame vote. That's, he was on the ballot, but did not receive a vote. Wow. That's yeah. Now he's probably the best player that never received a vote vote. Right. Like I'm trying to think of who else would be in that discussion. Uh, among modern candidates. I think he actually is. I, I did some research on this and actually we can go to another one because there's, Another player that you mentioned, not only did he not receive a boat, a vote, uh, a boat, he never got a boat, he <laughs> win a boat. Uh, he didn't get a vote. He was never actually on a BBWAA ballot. And that's Willie Davis. He was completely left off 
by the BBWAA. And this is a 60 war player. And I remember when Winds Above Replacement, uh, the, the version from Rally Monkey, when it first came out, I remember like finding Willie Davis and saying, oh my gosh, he's, he was incredible. It was actually right around the time that Willie Davis had passed away, unfortunately. And I was digging into his numbers and I, I couldn't believe uh, the new way that I was seeing Willie Davis thanks to Warren. I think so the beauty about uh, these types of context adjusted numbers and these kind of all encompassing numbers, because Willie Davis, I mean, he, he was almost a 280 hitter, uh, kind of a, around a league average hitter, you know, like 106 OPS plus. Uh, but then you look at his base running 63 runs above average, 34 runs above average and avoiding the double play 104 runs above average in defense. Um, and it just all adds up over a long career. And he's another guy, a little bit like when he played in the LA Coliseum when it was, or uh, Dodger stadium. I mean, when it was, you know, certainly, uh, a pitcher's park where, uh, it was the same seasons that Sandy Koufax was getting that huge boost. And you see why a candidate like Willie Davis slips through the cracks. And maybe he's another one like Wynn that we talked about that kind of fell through the cracks because of those reasons. Exactly. He certainly had an interesting middle of his career where you wouldn't expect a guy like this to peak, right? I mean, obviously, there's the all-time year that he had in 1964. 8.3 uh, baseball reference wins above replacement, which is incredible. But then he had that stretch from 1960, yeah, 1969 to uh, 1972, where he was worth at least 4.7 wins above replacement. I think my concern with him is that you have some peaks, um, be it individual seasons or like the stretch I just mentioned, but it kind of really drops off from there to enter the Hall of Fame, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But, but I love seeing guys that have dominating stretch. I feel like there has to be a wing. Not necessarily an induction win, but all-time little stretches like this. Because to dominate baseball like that for a sustained period of time, I think is worthy of some kind of attention. And that, that's why he does make my ballot, certainly. Because I love seeing guys that absolutely set the world on fire for a long time. Um, but not necessarily for his whole career. right? Because the way he faded out, I think that does not help him at the end. You look at his numbers really with the Rangers, the Cardinals, the Padres, and then a little bit with the Angels in uh, 79. Yeah, I it's uh, I was just going to say a lot of players go through the same thing, but that's why not every player is in the Hall of Fame. The ones that can stick it through to, to 40 years old are, are often the ones that put up those gaudy stats that get in. I mean, you got to consider, though, the fact that he managed to get – 2,561 hits in this era and in this ballpark. It's, it's rather impressive. Of course, one piece of that is his OBP is not good. Uh, 311. So yeah. he, he was not drawing walks, but he was getting a lot of hits. So that that's a, a good thing, but also be something that as you age uh, goes away rather quickly, which I think you found out. Yeah. I mean, he his his highest OP, OBP in a season was 356 and 69 is probably, I think, his best year overall anyway. But um, he never drew more than uh, 42 walks, which which he added in 1962. Um, so that is kind of a problem. I mean, he didn't strike out all that much, but, of course, that's more reflective of the era, I think. But it's still pretty solid overall. Never had more than 80, 88 in the season, which, again, for a pitching heavy era, 
that does stick out to me as something that's interesting at least. So he would get mm-hmm. the ball in play even if he wouldn't necessarily get on. Maybe we should move on to, to Billy Pierce. Um, in our last episode, we, we talked about how a lot of people have mentioned this before, but he was very similar in value, but just not as famous as Whitey Ford, a uh, contemporary of his. And I, Pierce just always, I, for the longest time when running the Hall of Stats, um, Billy Pierce was the guy on the borderline. He was like right there. So I've just kind of always thought of him as that like perfectly borderline Hall of Famer, which isn't something that inspires confidence in me to like to really push hard for him. But I think it's certainly someone that uh, needs to be in the conversation at the very least. Yeah, de- no, definitely. I mean, I, when I think about Billy Pierce, I think immediately about, I really think about 1952. Um, that's what I think about. Um, it reminds me of the draft I did one time where we did like an out, this is kind of sidetracking, but we did an outside the park uh, baseball simulation where you could pick any one play, any player from any one given season that he had to join your team. And Billy Pierce is like a guy that, to me, is for an all-time team, it was like a 12-team league, he is a good back-of-the-rotation guy for a single season. Um, but overall, I mean, he had that nice stretch between 52-53. Of course, he didn't, win, he didn't win too many games in 1952. So at the time, it was not very much a respected season. So that doesn't help. Um, I guess I think my concern is, that his peak is too short as well, right? Because I look at – it's such a shame he got hurt in 54 because if he has that, what changes for this guy? He was on an – I think he was on an inner circle Hall of Fame tra- trajectory. But once he came back from that, he did have a good 55-56. And okay, 57, very good 58. But I think he just really started to fall off very quickly at that point. And that is kind of the concern, Right. This is someone else who I see kind of like how I see Dale Murphy. I see a lot of these guys. They deserve to be recognized by being on my ballot, but not necessarily inducted because the peak is incredible, right? Like no one's going to debate this ever. But I just don't think there was enough around him to suggest this. And it's not necessarily the postseason success or anything. He was he was like pretty well at the time, certainly. I mean, he pitched in, in a top 10 MVP finish in 53 and 56, uh, just outside of it. 57, third in Cy Young for the Giants in 62, which was very odd, but I think that was more related to his win total in retrospect. That was more a writer's thing. But I just don't think he had enough uh, sustainability. He had a lot of um, solid years as kind of like a back-end guy towards the end of his career, but you want to have a little bit more than back-end. Like, you want your low point, I think, as a Hall of Famer to be like a number three, maybe a number four if you're really getting up there and hang around forever like a Phil Necro. Yeah. I guess a couple of things that I noticed about him now, just taking a look again is like you said, like he had some years at the end that he didn't fall off a cliff, but he quickly became an average starter for several years. And one of those years he happened to go 16 and six while he was an average starter. And that got him some Cy Young love. Another thing that I noticed about him is it seems like his best years did not align with his years that he won the most games. So that kind of, it's like he would have these brilliant seasons and go 15 and 12 or, or uh, 15 and 10 when he led the league with a 1.97 ERA, but then he won 20 games a couple of times when his ERAs were, you know, in the middle threes. So I think that uh, 
it, it, it's more difficult to form this opinion of him as having this dominant peak because everything didn't align like at the same time. No, I agree. It's kind of it's kind of like what never wound up happening with Felix Hernandez, in my opinion, um, which is mm. interesting. Like you talk about a guy who maybe had the very good um, peripheral stats, but he didn't have like oh the gaudy wind totals that look good for voters in his early days. So, but I, I, it is so weird to see this, right? Like, I mean, I imagine there are some other cases like this, but I don't think any of them are as extreme as Billy Pierce's are. And because of that, even if it balances out, right? Like, let's say you retroactively assign, like, that sounds like a fun idea, retroactive awards voting committee. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, no, if you wind up doing that, it's still, I don't think, is enough. Because, as, as I think we both said, where you look at where most of his seasons are, if you take away the accolades, they're not enough. I think you're looking at a guy who really had absolutely inner circle number one seasons but most of his years really strike me more, if anything, as like more like an average ace, sometimes into a number two, and then very quickly going into that three, three, four by modern rotational rules about mm-hmm. where you would evaluate him. And I guess I don't think there's enough years where you can say we saw him, even if it was off on, off on. I feel like if you pick a random year of his, it's just not going to be enough to justify him really as saying, He's an ace of the era, let alone um, compared across eras and being inducted on top of that. Granted, you can only play against your peers, but when we look at the the whole scope of Hall of Fame voters, I don't think that helps him. Yeah, he could be the best pitcher from this era outside the Hall of Fame, but that just might speak to the fact that this era is pretty well picked over too. So it's it's hard to use that as a justification for going in. Yeah, I agree that he's the best that's not in of this era, but that, but like you said, that maybe doesn't mean he should get in. It, it, it might just be um, more, more respect to due diligence of the voters for getting everybody in who meets the standard rather than, oh, this guy needs to be pushed in the door, you know? Mm-hmm. All right, so that brings your list, uh, if we include Bavese, to eight. So you had Flood, Boyer, Allen, and Minoso, which are the four that you would feel compelled to vote for. We added Bavese, Wynn, Davis, and Pierce. Do you have a couple others that would round out your ballot, or should I start throwing around some names and see if any stick? Um, yeah, so, I mean, someone I, I – I mean, people talk about Gil Hodges a lot. He's someone that, um, to me, is a similar problem with a lot of these guys who are left at this point. Wonderful peak, but it's only that peak. And it really starts to fade off very fast. Um, he's someone who always is intriguing me because I, I love reading about um, the World Series of the 50s and what he meant to those Dodgers-Yankees World Series um, and, and what he was for the Mets for a little bit there. But it's like, I don't think I don't think there's enough there. I A lot of these guys just had these great peaks. Uh, Carl Levito had one. Um, Sam McDowell, I think, had an outstanding start to the year that one year with the tribe. But the problem is these guys, I think are more snapshots of the game rather than storytellings of the game. And that's okay. I think, I think there's a place for that. I guess I don't think it's um, getting your full plaque involved. I feel like if the hall of fame did like years or like eras rather than overall inductance, then these guys would have a seat at the table. 
Yeah, there's a certainly uh, a not particularly brief moment in time, but maybe like a, an eight year peak or so that Tony Oliva would have to be a part of this as well if you were looking at eras. But with with a player like Oliva, he might be a little more compelling than some of the the other uh, guys that didn't quite last as long to me because that eight year peak was certainly Hall of Fame level. So I'm I'm, I'm a little a little bit warming up to uh, Tony Oliva's case. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it certainly was an excellent stretch, right? I mean, I mean, even if it's something as simple as batting average, which was valued back then, three twenty three, three twenty one, in back to back years in the mid sixties is absolutely incredible. Statistically, really, really strong across the board. Granted, it didn't really last past nineteen seventy one, but you talk about a guy putting up really consistently OPSs, um, not adjusted. I guess that they're more like 130, 140, um, but unadjusted OPS of like over 800 in the era of the picture pretty consistently. That's mm. pretty awesome. The problem to me, again, is really the sample size of it. But, you know, you'd have to include him in if you talk about like decades of dominance rather than um, careers of dominance or like like long careers of dominance. Because, I mean, it was pretty spectacular, right? Mm. Like you put in – you put in uh, – Two out of three years uh, where a wins above replacement was um, six or better. And then again, mid-60s. And he was young when he did this, too. Like, relatively. He was 25. He was 27. Um, he had that absolutely marvelous. He had that absolutely marvelous 1970, which I don't think gets enough credit for an all-time season at large. Um, that was a very good defensive year for him as well. It doesn't look as great uh, if you look at like the slash line or just the OPS plus alone, 325, 364, 514, uh, 137. But really, I mean, that, that was a year where he had a 1.5 uh, defensive wins above replacement. That's the only year he was actually ever above one and one of, and then one of only three where he was actually above uh, 0.0. So really sticks out to me in that regard. And he was deservingly an all-star and finished second in MVP voting that year, which is great for the time, but I, I think it's an all-time season. It deserves more credit. Yeah, in that eight-year peak, he was worth 5.8 war per 162 games, which 5.8 war per 162 is a Hall of Fame level. And eight years is getting close to enough to call that a Hall of Fame peak. It, it's tough. He's... It's, it's not quite the, the heights that you want for like the short peak guys, but it's a little bit longer than those guys too. I, I see him as the Don Mattingly of this era. He's got that great peak, but then dropped off so quickly. Uh, I definitely can see that. And, you know, I mean, I, the only exceptions I would make or if, if it's out of the player's circumstances, why they can like uh, Kim McCormick caring for his wife or Addy Joss, who happens to die out of nowhere. Sorry mm. to be morbid, but I mean, in that case, he couldn't control it. Um, but in this case, this was just natural decline. And I, I don't necessarily feel as generous and willing to induct if that's the case. But it was absolutely a Hall of Fame stretch within that time frame. The problem is we say, or at least I say, within that time frame. Outside mm -hmm. of it, it's just not the case. But man, if they had just done that for like, I don't know, like three, four years, I definitely, I would have said, put them in. 
All right. One more I'm particularly interested in uh, is someone who is on my list of four going into this, but uh, hasn't been on your ballot. And that is the aforementioned Bill Freehand. And uh, curious why he didn't quite make the cut for you. So Bill Freehand is an interesting case. Certainly. Um, I just, I don't think he had necessarily enough of a peak to be sustained. He had certainly a good number of years. Um, certainly interesting when you consider that he played a mix of catcher. Certainly we don't have enough catchers in because I think, I think that position needs to be adjusted a little bit better um, because of the defensive rigors and how far, how badly you get beat up during it. Um, certainly some interesting years like uh, 67, 68, especially during the year of the picture were absolutely incredible and OPS over 800, um, both times over 140. But I don't think he had enough of a peak to really justify it. I think that's just the thing, though. He was pretty solid throughout most of his career. I mean, even in 1976, his final year, granted only over 71 games, he was at 99 OPS plus. Um, 1974, somehow he's not really an all-star, despite I think having one of his better years for sure. But I just don't think that there's truly the level of dominance, even relative to his era, that justify it. Even even with the even with the era, even with the positions that he played, I think that that's really tough for me. He did play for winners. Um, he was certainly beloved. He was certainly an all star, great number of years. Um, a few top a uh, few top five MVP votings. Very well beloved for his glove. Just. I don't. I, I want to see a little bit more at the peak than that. That that that's what held me back. The sustainability is good, but I, I think it's too low of a plateau. Mm. Uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll implore you to to give freehand a little bit more of a look. I, Eleven All Star games. The only player who doesn't have steroid concerns that's outside of the Hall of Fame with with that many is um, Alex Radcliffe from the Negro Leagues. Um, yeah, just at the five gold gloves. He was just a leader of a team that did really well. I, I, I personally have a very soft spot for catchers. I think he was the best of his era that is not in. And uh, I would certainly uh, open the doors for Mr. Freehand. I'll open my ears. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll, I will look more into him. And, you know, I mean, even though we're recording this, I mean, I might change my mind. I might say, hey, Adam, you know what? You were right. I'm going to look more into him. Hey, when I hear that, I just learned that I have more work that I have to do. So no worries. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I like when I have to do more work for baseball, seriously, because I like to consider my own perspective, uh, what others are saying about how they viewed him, uh, be it from a retrospective like such as this or for players of his era. And I really, I, I probably am going to start with the Saber bio, um, bio project because I love to read those. And then from there, I like to match up stats that match up with what people are saying to try to create a narrative that way. So that's partly how I come up with my stats. I, I like to, I like to, I like to tell a story with them. And, you know, I'd love to hear that with freehand too, because I love, um, admittedly, I love defensive catchers a lot, especially guys who, and granted the winning doesn't bias me towards this, but it does make it interesting to me for a catcher in particular, because of how you can manage your picking staff with guys like low look and McLean and everything like that. So. Yeah, he was a good one. And yeah, I definitely appreciate how you turn these numbers into stories. And I think it was 
a great addition to this podcast. I'm so thrilled that you took part of, uh, in this and, and joined us to discuss these candidates. Uh, I, I, once again, there's always a, a new uh, way to, to see these candidates, and I appreciate you for sharing uh, your perspectives on them as well. And I think you have a great list here. I uh, have a lot of overlap with your list, but I also have some, some other names that I need to maybe focus a little bit more on, and maybe I'll nudge you uh, to, to do that with Mr. Freehand as well. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. That, that that is my next task. As soon as this gate, I'm I'm watching the ODS as this is going on. Admittedly, I can't <laughs> I can't help but multitask. But when this game is over, that's honestly the first thing I'm going to do. I'm going to look I'm going to look more into them. Excellent, Jessica. Thank you so much time. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today uh, on building the ballot. Um, do you have anything that you're you're working on that you would like to to tell the listeners about? Um, so not currently, but I'm always, I'm always in the mood to be on your baseball podcast. If you're willing to have me, I mean, I always am enjoying that. I'm doing some football stuff on the side right now, but you know, this is a baseball podcast, so we're going to keep it, we're going to keep it on the diamond. So just let me know uh, if you want me to do stats for your favorite player, favorite team. I'm always happy to answer your questions. And if I can't answer them, I will always try to offer something in return because seeing you happy with this game, it just makes me, me happy. And, you know, again, thrilled to be here. Just let me know whatever you need, anytime, anywhere. Okay, that was great. Thank you so much to Jessica Brand for joining me today. Jessica D. Brand on Twitter. I'm telling you, you have to follow Jessica. Great stuff all the time on baseball history. Uh, Really wonderful follow. So thank you again for for listening to this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm a terrible podcaster, so I never remember to do this, but I'm going to ask you to rate and review the podcast on Uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast uh, app that you use that will get this in front of more people. And and I have to say more people are listening to this than I thought. And I would, I would love to to share it with more and, and uh, by rating and reviewing that certainly helps uh, me do that. Um, So yeah, I really appreciate you listening and I hope you'll catch us next time. I get a couple more good shows lined up and uh, yeah, we'll do that then. Take care.